on the heels of the NFL Draft, we welcome you into a very special edition of Just Another Sports Podcast. Greg Swatek, Colin McGuire, Josh Smith here with you. We are joined by Jason Lockenfora of CBS Sports. And Jason, before we ask you about the draft, we want to start with a question uh, right in your wheelhouse. And that's, okay. with, and that's with the Orioles and the current state of the Orioles. Oh, boy. And, and, and if you... <laughs> If you were running the team, if you were Dan Duquette, who, judging by your Twitter feed, you're not a, not a huge uh, fan of, but if but if you were Dan no. Duquette, yeah, if you were Dan Duquette and running this team, what are three moves you would make to improve it uh, right away? Oh boy, do I have to stop at three? Um, and I just <laughs> let me issue a little, you know, apology caveat right off the bat. Um, we just went from obviously, as you guys know, winter to summer here out of the blue, and. <laughs> My seasonal allergies have gone from non-existent to freezing my butt off with my kids on Sunday at the Orioles game to, like, full bloom. So I'm sorry I sound like, um, you know, stuffed up and constipated or whatever, but, like, literally <laughs> all of a sudden at my kids' Little League game tonight, my just my nose blew up. So anyway, sorry about the sniffles. Are, are yeah, you- I mean, three moves? I mean, oh, boy. I mean, the... It's unfortunate they reached this point because it, it didn't have to come to this. And some of these decisions should have been made years ago and, and some players should have been extended and some players shouldn't have been extended and, and some players, you know, like Nelson Cruz should have never left this place and, and, and whatever. But this is where we are and this is the reality. Um, I actually think Manny Machado is not necessarily the first guy who should be mm-hmm. traded. I kind of feel like Adam Jones should be. Um, like, if we're going to go as deep into the muck as we need to go, and if we're going to really kind of um, tear at the heartstrings of Oriole fans, not not that Manny isn't beloved and all that, but, I mean, Adam kind of signifies something greater, right? And Manny was symptomatic of a change, of a sea change, of a cultural change that – that trade with 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 uh, Seattle, you know, and bringing in Tillman and and Adam is almost kind of more. It almost kind of resonates even more. And Adam's been here so long, right? And now JJ Hardy's not here, so now you're looking at Adam as the longest standing Oriole. And it's going to be um, it's going to be tough, and it's going to be visceral, and there's going to be tears shed and all that. I almost feel like started off with Adam. He, he, it's it's not going well right now. We talked about this a lot on our podcast this week. Manny looks like a guy who's hitting his way out of town, and Adam looks like a guy who's who's almost bogged down by the emotional weight of what's going on and who sees the big picture and who realizes there's nothing really to be accomplished here anymore and who almost seems burdened by it and, and, and bogged down by it. And his at-bats are, are every bit as sort of uneventful as Manny's are. And I guess these, these pendulums could swing either way. But I would almost start it with Adam. And I wish Austin Hayes was off to a better start, and I wish Cedric Mullins was off to a better start. But Cedric Mullins is the center fielder here, and you got to figure out what that means and, and how good he is. And, and by June, you know, July, you should probably start figuring that out. And I don't see Adam as a guy who could be cool, like just hanging out here as a right fielder, batting, you know, seventh, that's not going to work in Baltimore. Uh, I almost would start with him. Brad Brock's got to go. 
and really the prerequisites got to be in at least a couple of these deals, you take on money too. So we're going to give you a really good player in Manny Machado. We're going to give you a, you know, a good player in Adam Jones, but somebody's got to take Trumbo. Somebody's got to take Darren O'Day. There has to be, if we're not going to get back the immense prospect hauls that we should be getting, had these trades been made six or nine or 18 months ago or 12 months ago or whatever, then we at least need to get ourselves in a position where we're uber flexible from a payroll standpoint, where we can take on something. Or if we have no position prospects, then maybe we sign Mike Moustakis next year to go with these prospects we get from all these trades. So that's sort of where my headspace is right now. Jason, is there an untouchable player on this roster right now? I mean, I don't know what you would gain by trading a Trey Mancini. I just don't, you know, he's just starting to scratch the surface. Everything they've ever asked this kid to do. First of all, they they were never as high on him as they should have been. They didn't think as much of him as they thought of Christian Walker. Because if you go back three years ago, Christian Walker's the guy they moved from first. After they signed Davis to the monster extension, Christian Walker moves to the outfield. Trey Mancini stays at first base in Norfolk. No one really thinks much about it, and no one really thinks much about him. And I just, I watched the games on MILB, you know, TV.com, and we saw Trey and Frederick, and we saw Trey at Bowie, and I'm like, this guy's a pretty damn good ball player. But okay, they think Walker's better. They don't give him a position. He comes to camp. They don't think he'll make the team. So I would not – look, at bat leadoff, learn to play left field, you know, do this, do that. Anything they've ever asked him to do, he's exceeded their expectations. I don't know what would be gained by trading him. Um, I still don't, I don't know what would be gained by trading a Michael Gibbons right now, given, you know, t- converting him from shortstop to becoming a power arm out of the pen. And I know he isn't off to a great start. None of those guys are. But I still think of the current batch of relievers, he should be pitching tonight above and beyond O'Day and Brock right now. And, and let's find out exactly what we have there. I don't think trading him right now with a six ERA makes much sense, knowing that he's better than that. Um, Outside of that, I don't want to trade anybody who's in that Delmarva Shorebirds rotation right now, or really any of their relievers, for that matter. Um, I'm not trading Keegan Aiken, who's been tearing it up at Bowie his last three starts. He's got a whip of .78, uh, 24 strikeouts and 18 innings pitch, six earned runs. I'm not letting go of him right now for anything. But th- that's where. But in terms of the current 24 man. I don't see that. I would not trade Jonathan Scope now. I mean, I think you've got to eventually sign somebody else. And there's no, like I just said, no infielders coming up right now. We've got no infield prospects to speak of. So I think you need to really sign Jonathan Scope. But outside of that, I mean, most of the guys on this team don't even have a position and will probably be DFA'd at some point. I mean, so I'm open to anything. Jason, having said all that, um, and being an Oriole fan myself, I, know, I mean, I know how frustrating it is to watch. Chris Davis is at bats, and I wonder what it's like for somebody like you, who's so hardcore uh, Orioles fan. What's it like for you to watch at bats uh, when Chris Davis is up there? It's painful. It's it's painful. Um, he looks like he used to look like Superman, and now he looks like a Superman who you know took a bath in kryptonite for <laughs> you know fifty five straight days. I mean, there's no confidence. There's no swagger. There's no intimidation. I mean, he used to get in the batter's box, 
and hawk over home plate and dare you to throw something by him. And now he fouls the ball off, and he almost feels like, oh, wow, I made contact. Yeah. All right, okay, I'm hanging in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, a, a sea change. It's such a seismic difference from what he used to be. And when you hear Buck Showalter come out last Sunday and talk before a game that I took my kids to, and I was happy, frankly, that Mancini was at first, and Chris Davis wasn't even in the lineup. But when he says, yeah, he, Chris needs to get back to being a baseball player. I mean, that's about as damning as anything you ever hear Buck Showalter say, because he's always about our guys, and I love our guys. He'll never throw anybody under the bus. He'll always take the high road. He'll always defend these guys. But this is the biggest contract in the history of this franchise. We we need Chris Davis to get back to being a baseball player. Can you turn that? Can, can you turn that? Can you turn it around? I mean, this is like we're going on. You know, last season was most of the season where he was struggling, and now I. I I don't think he can. I don't think you can bank on him doing that. Yeah. I mean, he almost looks like a guy who who needs to be given like five to seven days off. Like I would almost not play him the rest of this road yeah. trip, and then well, or you know what, or play him on the road trip and not. And if it's going terribly, actually not play him at home. And they get back home, and you give him the Royal Series off, and then yeah, you see what he does over the weekend. And if you can't hit over the weekend, you go to him and say, bro. We need you to agree to a minor league assignment. Like mm. you, you've got to rebuild your swing. There, we can't have you rebuilding your swing in the middle of our lineup while we're going through our worst stretch since 1988 or whatever. You know, like that. Yeah. That can't happen. So you need to go down the buoy and just figure some stuff out and take as much time as you need. But and and it, it, it's also addition by subtraction. Because then you move Trey to first base. Right. And then maybe you do put Austin Hayes in left field. Right. And you lose right. Santander in right and Adams in center for now. But it's a more athletic outfield. It's it, it's a better constituted lineup. Maybe you have Hayes with speed hitting nine. Maybe that Chase uh Chance, I mean, who who I've been I've been impressed with a lot of what he's done. Maybe he's hot, not hitting ninth anymore. Maybe he's hitting seventh or something like that, and that gives him a jolt of confidence. And there's a lot of different ramifications that could come from that, but for Buck to say something like that tells me this is DEFCON 10. Like, this is this guy got five years left on his contract. Like, it's that's scary. So give him as much time as he needs, and I almost feel like he... he the best thing for him may be to agree yeah. to a minor league. You always, it's always a physical, right? A guy's going to the minors because it's a, it's a rehab assignment for his body, right? It's always about the body. Well, maybe he needs one for his mind. Well, what is Dan Ducat's number one sin as Orioles general manager, uh, Jason? His number one, I'm sorry? His number one sin. What, what, what's the move that he's made? Is, yeah. What, what has he done that's really just, just gotten under your well, skin? Well, I mean, more he got nothing else. for Arietta, And I understand. Arietta had to go. I think we all understood Arietta had to go. But he, he probably needs to go for something other than Feldman and Clevenger. Um, the, that, really, where I, where I started losing faith in Dan Duquette was around mid-June, early July of 2015. And I understand some of this is ownership-driven. And the owner doesn't want you to be a seller. But that doesn't mean you pretend you're a buyer. You don't trade Zach Davies for a month of, you know, Gerardo Parra, who nobody had ever heard of before that year. And he's hitting a bunch of doubles in, you know, Coors Field. And then he gets here and he's an abject failure. I mean, you, that, that can't happen. That was the time to trade Chris Davis, 
to trade Weeders. You can you can bring those guys back. Just like now, trading Adam Jones shouldn't be the end of the world. You can trade a guy and bring him back. The Yankees just did it with Chapman. It happens all the time. Like, if they really want to be here, and if you really want to pay them, they'll come back. Eddie, but Eddie meantime, Murray came back, right? Right. In a year where you're going to win nothing and accomplish nothing, you have to reap the rewards of those trades. And then if, if he wants to come back and be a part of a rebuild, and I don't think it's a three- to five-year rebuild. If they do this right, and the farm is as strong as I think it is in certain points, two years from now, they could win 86, 88 games. And they've got Cobb cheap for a while, and they've got Kastner cheap for a while. And, you know, Bundy, Gossman eventually will have to be extended and all that stuff. But, like, I look at Hunter Harvey. I can't wait to see him pitch at Bowie tomorrow night. I'm looking at some of what's happening here, and I'm like, they're they're not. It's it's it's. This should be the low point right now. The worst should be watching this slow pitch softball team, this this flawed group of individuals who don't really play as a collective. Slow and they pitch don't softball teams the hit, play more. They, they don't have. They don't, <laughs> what position does Pedro Alvarez play? What position does Danny Valencia play? Even Colby Rasmus. I mean, what position? Does he play right? I mean, it's just it's it's like they've smacked this ugly thing yeah. together, and it's held together by bubble gum. Well, let's let's rip it apart. And if Adam comes back, great. If Manny comes back, great. But this should be the ugliness. This should be as bad as it gets. Is watching this team right now with no hope and no future. They need to do what the Ravens did, which is hit the reset button and hopefully come out for the better on the other side. Jason, you just mentioned a rebuild. To you, would that rebuild involve Buck Showalter at all? Hmm. I mean, I think it's entirely up to Buck in what capacity, how does that work. The bigger question to me is Brady. Because Brady has clearly become um, sort of the guy behind the guy. And he's Peter's loved him since he played for Peter and hit 50 home runs for Peter as a leadoff guy and all that stuff. And the family is smitten with him, and I think John and Lou believe he's he's got the ability to do a lot of good things for this organization. But if he doesn't truly want to be the GM, it's hard to have a guy behind the guy who is in bed with the ownership. Right? So if it works, well, Brady had a lot to do with that. And if it doesn't work, well, ooh, that was the GM. That wasn't me. I don't know who walks into that situation from outside the organization and says, yeah, I'm going to take the job, and I'm really qualified. And just keep Brady. Let him work guys out. Let him train guys. Let him have guys in his house in the off season. Let him keep a locker in the you know in, in Camden Yards, and let him be all things to all people. And I'll just roll with that. I, I don't think that's feasible. I don't think that's how you know things are generally done. Doesn't mean there's not a role for him, but and maybe it's Buck and Brady as a tandem running baseball operations, and then. Whatever Ryan Miner, whoever as you know, sort of their puppet running the team as a skipper. I, I don't know. I don't know what the paradigm is that makes the most sense. But I think you need to figure Brady's role out pretty soon. How? And if Brady never wants to be someone whose name's attached to transactions at the end of the day, then I think you need to figure out what he does best and create that very sculpted role for him. But it's not one that's going to scare off or make waves for some outside GM who might be looking at this situation saying it's not as dire as it is and as some think it is. And, and, and maybe there is, you know, 
this this could be a good gig, but I don't want you know. I'm looking at Brady, thinking, is he working for the Angeloses? You know what I mean? Is he mm-hmm. kind of the in-house guy? What's what, what what you know? That's not that's not normal. It's it's just not. I have to ask at least a little bit. I mean, how much of this? How much of the woes for the O's? That rhymed. How much of the issues that the the franchise have do you lay at the feet of Buck at this point? I mean, do you think he's overstayed his welcome? Is he still as beloved in Baltimore as he's been? I mean, it's 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 everything there is sort of cloaked in a bit of darkness, right? You don't. There's not a whole lot of press conferences. Yeah. You know, the owner has basically been, you know hidden away under the cloak, like stashed in the basement somewhere for years. No one really wants to put their name to decisions. You don't know that the inability to develop pitchers, is that buck being stuck a little bit in the dark ages? Is that buck and Adair and this sort of uh, inner circle of pitching coaches who, who maybe aren't doing what they should be? Is it them telling guys, don't throw this pitch, don't throw that pitch? Is it them making guys work faster than they normally would want to? Does that have something to do with why Arietta goes to Chicago and becomes a Cy Young award winner where he didn't look like a number five starter in Baltimore? I, mean, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to all those things. Um, but I think Buck's instincts are pretty good. And I think Buck has done a tremendous job stewarding this group of players through an, you know, an era of, of – prosperity that we haven't seen around here since the late 90s and I think Dan Duquette was the right guy at the right time I think Andy McPhail laid this foundation Andy McPhail you want to give Duquette credit for Brock absolutely O'Day sure Wei-Yan Chen yep that was fun for a while uh Gonzalez Miggy yeah yeah He, he, he got hot early on here found a bunch of guys from unusual spots. But since then, I think he's basically eroded what he inherited from Nick Fale. And I think that Buck has been a, a beacon and a guy who got people to buy in and kept this thing going. But then again, you read what Kenny Rose saw on some people report. At this point, it might be stale, and they might be tuning him out. And maybe the best thing for the whole organization is for next year Buck to be a part of baseball operations and not in the dugout, especially if this is going to be an uber-young team um, that, that maybe might respond better to a younger guy who a lot of them played for in the minors at some point. I, I don't know, but I really hope the organization is thinking in these macro terms. And I, I think that they're I, – I pray that they're looking at this as being the crossroads that it is. Because if they get this right, again, I think 2020, they could be very competitive and surprising people the way they did much of the last five years. And if they get it wrong, and they've already butchered it to some point because they're never going to get what they should have got from Manny right. you know, before the start of last season. But if they continue down that path, then it could be you know, 12 years without a playoff appearance. Jason, let's talk about some happier times as Oriole fans. Uh, you were in attendance uh, for games at Memorial Stadium for the 1983 World Series, right? Yes. Yeah. How old were you? Yes, we were. I'm sorry? How old were you? I was born in 74. I was born in April of 74, so I would have been nine. I, my oldest 
son is now 11 and he's in fifth grade. I feel like I was in third grade. Yeah, it you... was kind of weird. Uh, our next door neighbors, um, the Rainers, their dad worked for the city and was kind of like a big wheel in like Baltimore city public Works. So we ended up going to the game with them and got like a police escort from, from Highland oh, town out to, wow. out to 33rd street. So I remember that. And we sat in the last row of the upper deck behind home plate. And I remember feeling like if I got on my dad's shoulders, I could probably touch the blimp, you know, cause the blimp yes. was just hovering over the stadium the whole time. And we were like literally the last, the last row, like, way above the old auxiliary football mm-hmm. press box in Memorial Stadium. So, yeah, absolutely. That uh, I, I Actually, I found an a old shoebox at my mom's house a couple weeks ago, and it had a ticket stub from the game nice. we went to and the program and stuff, and I was showing it to my boy. My brother went to a – he was at a band competition at Memorial Stadium when he was, like, in high school, and he ripped off a piece of a chair for me or something. It was after Camden Yards had opened, so I have a piece of, Camden, uh, a piece of Memorial Stadium somewhere in my – in my possession. I wanted to ask you, um, who, like looking back on those times, who, who was your favorite all time Oriole? Eddie Murray. Okay. I mean, Eddie was such a beast. I mean, he was so clutch and I can just remember so many times where he just came through. I mean, and the first opening day I ever went to was 82 and Cal had a big home run oh, in that wow. game, but I was always more of an Eddie guy than a cow guy. I, I, I just kind of was, um, for whatever reason. So yeah, yeah, Eddie. And I mean, I would, and Frank too. I got to know Frank. Like I can, as a kid, I would take the bus out to Memorial stadium at the start of the series. We would hang out in front of the stadium. We would get autographs of the guys when they were, oh, you know, man. the Orioles players would be driving in their cars. And then you'd have the visiting teams showing up on any cabs and team buses or whatever. And Frank was really cool. And he was the skipper at the time. And, like, he would leave tickets for us all the time. Like, we'd talk to him, and he'd be like, hey, go to Will Call at, like, 5.30, you know, and ask for two under my name. And he would leave us tickets. Like, Frank was super cool. And I, I want, like, an old-school orange Orioles Frank jersey. And, actually, we were at the game on Sunday, and I'm in the Orioles um, team store, and we're on our way back to the car. And I'm like, hey, guys, let me go in here and look. And yeah. they've got Freddie Lynn jerseys. They've got Hoyt Wilhelm. Do they tell I mean, me? Do they do they like, have a Mike Devereaux jersey? I would totally buy that. They didn't have Devo, oh. and I covered Devo, and I liked him as a as a player and everything. But thank God they didn't have him because at this point, I, there's you never see a number twenty Frank Robinson yeah. anywhere. Like it's almost like they don't produce them, and it's like people would buy the them. Greatest, he's the greatest player in their history, and he served as manager. And I, I don't know. I don't know if there's some fallout with him <laughs> and in the O's. I, I don't know what the deal is there. But I was, I can't find, like, and then we, well, we have family who live near Cooperstown. So if you've ever been to Cooperstown, there's jersey stores, like, everything is, like, baseball memorabilia all up and down Main Street. And we're there, like, three times a year. I can never find mm-hmm. a Frank jersey there. Um, you so anyway, be able I'm to find off on a tangent. you got to be able to find one online, though. No? I mean, I'm sure I could, but it's just like, how, why is yeah. that, why is it, why can I get a Hoyt Wilhelm? Or a, <laughs> I get he's in the Hall of Fame, but I mean, yeah. whatever. And like Fred Lynn, he was here like four years. Yeah. And they were at the end of his years. year. Like, why can I get career. a Fred Lynn jersey at the team store, but not a Frank Robinson? Um, but yeah, guys I loved as a kid. Uh, I mean, Eddie definitely stands out um, first and foremost, but like, 
I can remember when they got Alan Wiggins and I was all excited about Alan Wiggins and I mean, you know, various guys who were supposed to be like, I remember when Jim Traber was going to be like, you know, mm-hmm. the next Jim Rice or whatever, or, you know, Pete Stanisek. And I mean, I, yeah, I mean, Oh, yeah. You know, you're excited about all, all those guys. I mean, Manny Alexander, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to be the one. And, but Eddie, Eddie definitely would be the guy. I, I mean, I just can vividly remember as a kid, like he comes up in any clutch situation and you start kind of tingling, mm-hmm. you know, sitting there on 33rd Street because you're like, this guy's going to drive somebody in. Hey, hey, Jason, before we dive into the NFL and what you do for a living, uh, Cal Ripken's house is for sale. So we, we were all curious. Have you considered oh. Have you considered putting in a bill, bid for uh, Cal's house? <laughs> no. I, no. I, <laughs> have you been to you, Cal's you house? You flatter me. No. If you've been to my house, you would see that there's no way that I'm, I am uh, anywhere. It's time to expand, close. Jason. You've got it, how many is kids? Is the house with the, the basketball court and everything? Yeah, your house might fit into his basketball court yeah. so, or, or, oh, or, 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 or somewhere on the property. Yeah. So. No, my house would be like probably would fit into like his guest bedroom right. and like master bath or where, whatever. Where Billy sleeps. No, right? I didn't. <laughs> I, I did not know that, uh, his house was for sale. I have no desire to buy <laughs> his house. And I, more, most importantly, I don't have the wherewithal to acquire his house. Even if I wanted, it, would you buy Eddie Murray's um, house? Does he still have a I residence in this I'm area? I figure I everything idea. Eddie has is probably in, in Southern LA. California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking everything is out there. Um, I'll take like one of Eddie's old cleats or something like yeah. that if it's hanging around. I'd probably get outbid for it, but I'd check it out. <laughs> All right, Jason. So the NFL draft was just this weekend, and and it was it was uh, a huge story. Obviously, how much do you enjoy your job uh, around the draft? I enjoy it most when it's over. I'm going to be completely <laughs> honest with you because it's 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 crazy to me, like what the draft has become and how it's this year round cottage sort of industry and. People, I mean, the mock drafts and the projections, and it really is the melding of the two biggest sports in America, which are professional football, the NFL, and college football. And people can't get enough of it, and it affects them through their allegiances to their college teams. It affects them through their fantasy football teams and their fantasy football dynasty teams, and it affects them through their you know, who they're going to bet for and who they're going to bet with or against any given week. And it affects them through their NFL rooting allegiances. So it's, it's crazy. Like it, it I mean, if, if the NFL really wanted to, and if they really wanted to serve their teams, you could hold the NFL draft three weeks after the combine. You give everybody three weeks to get these kids in for their top 30s and to work them out. And you could, you could have the NFL draft, a week after free agency starts, and you have a lot of happy GMs and coaches. And then they can actually take four or five weeks off before OTAs start, and it would make a lot of sense. But you wouldn't get three months of hype, right? You wouldn't get three months of mock drafts. You wouldn't get um, all the pomp and circumstance that now comes with the draft. So I understand why they don't do it. Um, I, I feel bad for these kids. They get dragged through the mud. They get picked to shreds. You know, they didn't sign up for this. They played college football. They accepted their scholarship. And now they're under this ridiculous microscope. And 
a lot of what they get blamed for or their perceived blemishes turn out to be irrelevant, right? And a lot of the kids who get exalted and, and put on high and say, well, they're, they're the next Messiah, well, they end up flaming out. And we just don't know. It's yeah. the most inexact science in the world. We're talking about 21, 22, 23-year-old kids who were trying to project how they handle fame and success. Some teams go to stable organizations. Some I mean, some kids go to organizations that they couldn't develop. Johnny Unitas, if you fell in their lap. So I have a lot of reservations about it, but the draft itself, when we finally get to within 48 hours of the draft, and you think you've got it somewhat figured out, and you think you've got a beat on some things, there's definitely an adrenaline rush. I wanted to ask you a little about that because the biggest story out of the draft, uh, it was kind of a surprise that Baker Mayfield went number one to Cleveland. And for you, is this something that just came to you as sort of an NFL insider? Did that come within the last 48 hours? Did At what point did you think or know that the Cleveland was going to go with Baker Mayfield? Yeah, because you, you had him going to the Browns in your mock, your one, one and only mock, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I, he was always in the mix. I mean, through the entire process, at certain points, I would have said it, it might be Baker Mayfield, it might be uh, Sam Darnold, or it might be Josh Allen. And right now, as you ask me this, if it was, you know, March the 28th, I might have said Josh Allen. And if we would have had this, you know, we would have recorded. Uh, wait one second, I'm about to sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. If we would have done the same, thank you. If we would have done the same exercise, you know, say April the twelfth, I would have said it, it might be Baker Mayfield, it might be Josh Allen, but right now, if you're putting a gun to my head, I would say Sam Donald. Hmm. And then three days before the draft, I would have said the same thing, except I would have said, I still think it's Sam Donald. And then once John Dorsey, the GM, and this is why I don't do a draft until I mean a, a mock draft until you know, a, the day of the draft. We were going to ask you Because that, you, yeah. don't really, you don't really get real information until the week of the draft. Mm-hmm. When teams start calling teams, talking about trade offers and what they're trying to do, that's when you get the real stuff. So once John Dorsey told Hugh Jackson, his coach, hey, Mayfield's the pick, it took about 35 seconds for the whole league to know Mayfield mm-hmm. was the pick. So, you know, once it was no longer just John Dorsey and just, Jimmy Haslam, the owner who knew what was going on. Then it was, it was it, like, I, I like to say I, you know, was some rocket scientist, but no, every, I mean, anybody you talk to who talked to anybody with the Browns coaching staff pretty much let it out of the bag. I had, I had read, uh, I think earlier today there was a report that Sam Darnold was the number one pick, and then Baker Mayfield kind of came in and blew them away with his interview. Did you hear any stories about that, or what was the deciding factor? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you this. Baker Mayfield signed with a very good group of agents. Guys who are not over the top, not bombastic, not showboats the way he's perceived to be. But almost a father-son sort of agent team who are a little bit old school, a little bit throwbacks, and it rubbed people the right way. And they controlled the narrative, and they did a tremendous job marketing him to teams and marketing him to the media. And Baker, for his part stayed out of trouble and didn't say you're doing anything too crazy although i thought some of his like whatever it was called behind baker that facebook thing he had going on 
um, was a little much at times, but he didn't do anything too crazy. And he he had great interviews. He was very polished, very poised, and you know he took a bunch of visits. And everybody I talked to with the team that he visited said, you know what, he's not so bad. You know he's he's kind of all right. And he really impressed our head coach. And he knows how to turn on the charm. Now is that Eddie Haskell? You know right, what I mean? Right. Or, or is that real? We're going to find out. Right. We're, we're, we're going to find out. But he he understood the process and how to benefit from the process and make the most of the process, and it worked for him. It worked for him to the ultimate degree to, to which the Cleveland Browns, who could have taken him at four, they could have. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to the Jets. If the Jets had to – now, if Donald goes one, yeah, he's not getting past the Jets. And at the time, I wrote a lot of the stuff about Donald, you know, is not going to get past, or, or, or Baker's not going to get past three. Yeah, well, that's because at that point, I'm also writing, at this point in time, if you made me guess, I'm guessing the Browns are going to take Sam Donald because a lot of the evaluators I talk to think Donald's the best. But they were never taking Mayfield above Donald at three. And the Giants were never drafting a quarterback, right. period. Right. So that's where you can start to question the Browns. Could they have gone Barkley one, Chubb four, and then traded back in the 32 to get Lamar Jackson? Absolutely. Could they have gone whatever, Chubb one, Mayfield four, and then use 33 and 35 to move up to Mm -hmm. 18? and take Jair Alexander and get their corner there. Absolutely. If they so love Baker Mayfield, could they have taken Mayfield 1, traded out of 4 to 12, got Denzel Ward or Minka Fitzpatrick there, mm-hmm. plus picked up 21, taking a player there, and move 33 and 35 to get to 32, and take another starting caliber player there? Absolutely. At the end of the day, they walk out of the first round, with Mayfield and Ward. And, and and maybe they're right. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying when I talk to people in 10 different war rooms after that first round, these were the questions they were asking. The, the preamble to the draft, the big comparison with Mayfield was obviously Manziel. What, what was your take on, on that talk? I think it was lazy and sloppy. Yeah. Th- this, is, this, is my, this is my comp for... Uh, Baker Mayfield. If if it's if he crushes it, if he's who the Browns pray he will be, he's Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. If he fails, it's not going to be because he's got a you know all kinds of demons and major substance abuse problems and major chemical imbalances and major sort of character flaws like Johnny Manziel had. It's because he's not tall enough and not strong enough and not a good enough thrower on the run. When he throws on the run, he has to stop, point himself, and then throw. He's not fluid the way Lamar Jackson is fluid. He's not fluid the way Russell Wilson is fluid. He's a straight-line runner. He doesn't run like a running back. He runs like an RG3. Well, that'll get you killed in this. <laughs> so when I think he is at the worst point, who is who is he at his worst? It's not Manziel. It's Rex Grossman. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Which, not very good, but right. not for the same reasons Johnny Manziel right. flamed out, you know, heroically, spectacularly. Jason, how ridiculous is it that we grade these drafts in real time, like as they happen? Like, don't these... do it. I refuse to do it. I that's mean, one, that's one thing I love about reading your stuff is you don't, you don't, you know, you didn't do all these mocks and you don't do immediate grades. You take a different track with that. Well, I, I just, I can't, you know, I got to live myself at the end of the day. Yeah. And as much as I rail against the process and then tearing these kids down and then blowing up every little peccadillo and then pretending that they're, you know, Zygmunt Ford, and they can get inside their heads, and they can re-examine them, and that these old-school scouts and, and antiquated, in a lot of instances, thinkers are smarter and better than you. No, they're not. And if they, you know what, if they were really good at drafting players, then you would you would see sort of this gentle parabola that would start at the top, where first round is. Pro Bowler, All Pro, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, All Pro, All Pro, Pro Bowler, Pro Bowler, Pro Bowler, right? And then it'll dip down to the second round, which is, you know, Pro Bowler, Pro Bowler, solid starter, uh, three contract guy, two contract guy, one contract guy. Uh, We tried, but we missed. Oh, total failure, right? All the way down to the undrafted guys who never make a roster. But what really happens? Undrafted guys make a lot of rosters. And fifth-round picks end up outperforming first-round picks in a lot of instances, and we just don't know. So if the process itself was efficient, then I would buy into all the BS that comes with it, which is we knew ahead of time, and we can tell you so. And, yeah, of course this kid wasn't any good. And, of course, that kid wasn't any good. And, yeah, just because he did this when he was 20 means that he's going to be this person for the rest of his life. But it's it's you're talking about drafting 267 kids or whatever, whatever, 300 kids. Who the hell knows? It's. Well, it's I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Now, what would Tom Brady's instant grade have been in in the in this in the sixth right. round of that draft? And the draft, and what would the grade have been on the entire Patriots draft? And and here's the thing, like everybody says, obviously, right? Where they took him is an absolute steal. But do you know he was the third sixth round pick? So if they really thought he was anything, right? He would at least been their first. They picked three times in that round, right. and then you got Bill Polian and said, "Oh yeah, I do." But we had Peyton. I mean, shut up! Like, it's, 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 there's so much BS that comes with yeah. it, and I just have a hard time stomaching it. So I can't be a total hypocrite and say I know better and I know more. And this is this is the this is how it has to be. These are the grades. This is. And I understand why people do, do doing, you know, there's friends of mine, very good friends of mine, who have to engage in that exercise because that's what people expect 24 hours after the draft. And that gets a lot of hits, that gets a lot of eyeballs, that gets a lot of traffic, and you're feeding the beast. And I get all that, but it's just, that's just, uh, I, that's not me. Do your bosses at CBS want want you to do more? I mean, is it, are you is there pressure for you to do more? Oh, if I did do more, if I did a draft every week from February to, you know, April, my boys at CBSSports.com, all my editors there would be, they'd be happy as hell about that. Like, they would love it. But I I have a hard time. Like, when I put my name to something, like, I want it to at least be grounded in fact. And and the guys who do evaluate players year-round, the Mishays, the Kuypers, just go look at what they have in January and then go look at what they have in April. And it's 
drastically different because you don't start finding out what the true guys who do this for a living think until late April, early May. So why am I going to pretend I'm something I'm not? I'm not going to. So I'll give. I'll do columns. I'll try to think of it different ways. Like here's tiers of players. Here's how many guys at each position I think will go in the first round. Here's guys I think are absolute locks. Here's guys nobody's writing about in their mock drafts, like a Terrell, like a Terrell Edmonds, you know, like a Frank Ragnow. I'm going to give you those names in April, a month before the draft, and you've never seen them in a mock draft anywhere. And I'm going to tell you they're going in the first round. So I'll, I'll kind of go about it that way, but I'm not going to put a lock out until I know at least, you know, on a bad year, 25, and a good year, 30 of those kids are going in the first 32. You just mentioned something. We You mentioned the Patriots for a second, and I, I have to ask, is there a better story right now? Is there anything more interesting in, sort of, in terms of, like, drama? And, and like, when, when it comes to everything that you hear, is it really as dysfunctional as some would lead us no. to believe? No. I, I don't think so. Um, it's just about money. Hmm. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's, it's pretty simple. Tom Brady's the greatest player in NFL history, as far as I'm concerned. He's not the best quarterback. He's not the best passer. He's the most impactful player in NFL history. And his backup got traded to San Francisco, sat for six weeks, played one month, turned their fortunes around to the point where he gets $60 million guaranteed. <laughs> Tom Brady's like the 14th highest paid quarterback. Rob Gronkowski, if he stays healthy for another couple years, will undoubtedly be the greatest tight end in NFL history. He actually blocks. He engages in the run game. When he's healthy, you don't take him off the field. And he's a matchup nightmare, nightmare even at this point. His agent signed him to an extension four years ago, coming off an injury. He's a complete bargain. He's not going to the WWF. He's not going to be a cattle herder. He's not going to um, be in, you know, they don't even have the circus anymore, right? I guess Barnum and Bailey's over. But he's not walking a trapeze. You know, he's not going to do porn. Like, he's, he's a tight end. And he wants to play football. And you, But you got to, Bob Kraft, you got to make it right with both their pocketbooks. But why does Tom Brady say all DQ on their appreciated time, and he pleads the fifth. How are athletes appreciated? What is the one way, there's one singular way in which they're appreciated? It's the paycheck. So when a guy who couldn't beat me out, who you drafted three years ago in the second round, because I'm not going to make it to age 40, I'm winning an MVP at age 40, and he goes somewhere else that sucks, that can't beat anybody, and then they win a few games, and you pay him like he's me, and my team's not paying me like I'm me, and yeah, I'm going to go hang out with my trainer. I'm going to go hang out with Tom House. I'm going to go hang out with my model wife. I don't have to be there first day of workouts. I don't have to do a damn thing. But by week one, you're probably going to pay me what I'm worth, and then it's all good. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's, it's not personal. It's just business. Does... And Bob, this is on Bob Kraft. To me, this isn't even about Belichick. It's about Bob Kraft. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say, does this Belichick doesn't factor in at all with this? I mean, look, could he be more touchy feely? Could he show everybody the love? I guess, but they've been to like 
15 AFC championship games in a row and whatever. Won 10 of them and been to eight Super Bowls and one half. I mean, like, he's never, this is the thing. You think Tom Brady cares about how many gold stars are on his helmet? Like, do you think he cares about, oh, I never won Patriot a week this year. Ooh, wow. <laughs> I mean, why does he keep giving it to Brandon Cooks or, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. Why did he give our left guard a gold star this week and not me? I'm sorry, I, don't, I really don't think that's how it These guys are stone-cold cutthroat assassins. That's why it's worth Is At the end of the day, at a certain level, they're willing to sort of subjugate themselves for this greater thing, which is we are the best team that's ever existed. And we're existing in an era that's made to tear us down. This isn't Lombardi's Packers who, once we draft you, we own you for 20 years. And if we want to get rid of you, we'll get rid of you. But you can't do a damn thing about it. It's like pre-Kurt Flood baseball, you know, reserve clause. I mean, that's what the NFL was for a long, long time. This is completely different. Completely different. Jumping onto a different a different NFL team. How how soon do we see Lamar Jackson playing in the in the regular season? Week one. Wow. Week one. wow. I don't know if it's wow. two plays. I don't know if it's six They'll plays. They'll have a package for him. Twelve plays. Yeah. They have multiple packages for him. How could you not? How could you not? Absolutely. Who is a more explosive football player on their roster right now right. at any position? RG three. There is one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So does, does RG three survive? There's no way they keep RG three. I mean, they could keep three if RG three is there to be the human embodiment of X's and O's, right? So some guys learn through like writing out plays in their notebook, and some guys learn through watching a coach write plays on a whiteboard, and some guys learn through getting the reps themselves, and some guys also learn through that, but they learn through watching another guy get those same reps, but somebody who's already done it before, and maybe they see how they do it a little bit different, and they're like, oh, okay, I can learn from that, I can learn from that, I can learn from that. That's why he's there. Okay. Now, you might want to keep three, because you don't want to expose Lamar to too much. He's not... He's. You don't want him to take too many hits too soon, and there's a lot to this to suss out. You know, and to figure out, and it's a complex equation. I, I would keep three. I mean, they're not winning a Super Bowl this year. Right. It's about developing this quarterback for 2019, and it's about shedding a whole bunch of salary after the 2018 season, and being in a position to start winning long term with a quarterback who, for the next five years, isn't going to make any significant money, and who's going to allow you to recut to your roster in ways you haven't been able to do for a long, long time. So. It's, it's, they've completely hit the reboot button. They are in a different place than they've ever been before. It doesn't matter what they say. This is the reality of their actions. And I absolutely applaud them for it because they really had no other choice. And I'm glad they embraced it and executed it and did it the way they did it. Um, and if they, if it doesn't work out, I will never rip them for it because it was time to go as bold as you can go. And to me, personally, the risk of trading next year's two to get this particular kid at 32 is far less than the risk incumbent upon passing on uh, Edmonds at 16 to trade down twice to get a tight end who 
might have been there at pick 38. Jason, two of the hot-button, off-the-field topics we wanted to touch on with you. Uh, first, the National Anthem protests. Are, are, are these things going to flare up again, or do you think they'll gradually fade away? I mean, look, they, they were. it was pretty much over until Trump went bonkers, and then a bunch of guys, and understandably so, reacted to it, and then kneeled en masse, including the Ravens game in London against the Jags. And then, you know, that became a whole nother tempest, but... Most weeks, I believe it was 12 to 15 players in the entire league, you know, and we're talking about a league of, you know, do the math, 32 teams, 53-man rosters, a lot of players. We're talking 12 to 15 to 18 players any given week. So I, I, is it going away? No. And is it going to get, you know, are we going to see a whole lot of private meetings between owners and players after that audio got out of, of their meeting in New York, probably not. And there's still a whole lot to figure out here and a lot of um, sort of ego management and a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with football. But at the end of the day, I believe if the, even if they don't change the rules, even if they don't say, you know, we're no longer going to televise this stuff and we're going to move, we're going to move the anthems back till you know 1225 right so if you move back to 1225 on a 1 p.m kickoff nobody's seeing anything like that's in the middle of the nfl today in the middle of fox's pregame show like nobody's nobody's gonna get caught up in that stuff even if they don't do that i still don't think it'll be the issue that it was last year and i truly feel like had Trump not latched onto it that particular week, it was already dying down. I mean, dying down significantly. The second thing I wanted to ask you about was just uh, the player safety. I mean, that's such that's such a big topic of conversation in the game, and, and just the future of football. I mean, will kickoffs be part of this game in, in, in five years? Five years, I, I, I might not. It might not. Um, I think it might just be. I think we might, may still have punts, but but maybe not kickoffs. Um, everybody's hoping there's this magic board that somebody's going to invent a helmet that's going to just save, you know, take concussions out of the game. And But uh, I think that's wishful thinking at best. I, I, I don't think a, a sport as inherently violent as this, uh, uh, I want to be called a collision sport. I mean, it's a concussion sport. I mean, it's... You, you you can't eradicate that from the game. I understand they want to change targeting, they want to change this, they want to change that, and for good reason. But you're not going to be able to litigate this stuff. At, you're not going to be able to write the perfect rule book that all of a sudden, you know, we're not seeing headshot after headshot. I mean, the one thing they could do that and I've been saying this for years, that could actually alter the landscape would be change the gridiron. I mean, this is Newt Rockney's gridiron. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, this is the, the same gridiron that go to Canton, Ohio, and, you know, look at the, the grainy film of people from the 30s and the 20s. And this is, the, nothing's changed. Go to a CFL-type field and create a little more space with the speed you have inherent in the game now and, and 
with these incredible athletes and let them do their thing. But that means eradicating a whole bunch of box seats, and that means reconfiguring things and changing camera angles and all that stuff. And it's not easy, and I, and I get all that. But that's what always blows my mind. It's like this, you know, you, you, you go back to Notre Dame, you know, running the ball in the 50s. It's the same it's the same field that everybody's played. Slinging sanding ball. It's the same gridiron. But nothing about the game now looks like it did then. Yeah, we're a long way from three except yards for the in a field itself. Yeah. yeah. It, so, I mean, that, I've been saying this forever. Like, move to a CFL field. That's it's drastic. It seems kind of crazy. Or, or maybe play preseason games on the CFL field for a couple of years and see how that goes. But you want to create more space, more room, let the athletes be the athletes, give them the ability to turn and make a catch and bring a ball down without worrying about, you know, their career ending on that play. That's how you do it. Jason, I want to switch gears a whole lot here quickly because I know we're, we're kind of running out of time. We don't want to keep you up all night. We know you're sick, and we're very grateful that you're giving us the time anyway. <laughs> no, no, no worries. I feel bad. I, uh, all of a sudden, my allergies are killing me. But I, I, want to, I want to touch, however, briefly on sort of your career. Um, you started out in newspapers, and you had a job you know, at the Washington Post, and the Washington Post is really one of the great newspapers in this country. Yes. Uh, do you ever see yourself going back to newspapers? Is it something you miss at all? I would never say never. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I, there's something so, um, like, real and... There's there's a communication you have with your readers, and there's the ability to sort of maintain a voice that I think will always be endemic to newspapers. And I understand you have an online column and this or that, but I, I think it's just different when you're. I'm, my goal, look, I got into journalism, and I wanted to become a decent beat writer. And I played hockey as a kid. My goal was like, let me go to a market where hockey matters and where people actually care about hockey and I can write about hockey in a way where I don't have to dumb things down and I don't have to placate people, but I can, you know, the market actually is insatiable. And then I ended up covering the Red Wings and the Red Wings went back to back Stanley Cups and it's like, it's amazing. And then my goal was, you know, I got hired at the Washington Post, um, covering hockey there and, you know, it was ugly. I mean, Leos firing coaches and they're bringing in Yager and Lang and I'm like this is not going to work this is ugly people aren't going to come to watch these guys and then they blow that team up and I, I was you know then I start covering the, the the Redskins for the Washington Post and I'm like this is amazing and I'm, I'm covering the NFL and this is great and I leave for the NFL Network and I'm, I'm on this trail now but there's a big part of me that's like I was never a columnist in a, you know, for a major metropolitan newspaper. And that was always something that I wanted to do. And while I was at the Post, I was always fighting and clawing to do columns and let me do more of this, and they'd let me write a football column here or there. But it just wasn't my role. And I, underst- and I understood. And this is, you know, the early 2000s when roles were defined and before, you know, Internet journalism and blogs really blew up. But there's a big part of me who... I live in this market. I see what's going on in this market. It's like, damn, if I had a column today, 
boy, I'd be bringing the thunder on this and that. Like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, nobody's writing this? And then five days later, nobody's still writing this? Like, ugh. Hey, come and on, then you I'll can be write talking it. talking to some of my old buddies from, you know, who I came up with, like the guys who raised me. And and the the, the, the my mentors, and I'm like, can you believe that, what the hell's going on here? And imagine if it was back in the day, and, you know, it's Kenny and Buster and me, and I was like, you guys, you would have never let this slide. Even if you were the beat writer, you would have made sure somebody damn sure wrote this. And they're like, dude, we're with you. So, yeah, there's a big part of me who at some point I feel like that's something I haven't done. And I would love to have that connection with readers. And I would love to have that that opportunity. And there were times I was at the Washington Post, and I'm like, I kept waiting for like somebody at the Baltimore Sun to be like, hey, we just come here and be a columnist. And I interviewed a couple of times. But I never got the sense that it was that they were really, truly entertaining it. But, yeah, I would love it. I mean, especially here where, like, I wouldn't have to pretend I'm something I'm not. Like, you know what I mean? I wanted to care that I, like, pretend that I cared about who won the Denver Nuggets, San Jose, (laughs) or whatever, San Antonio Spurs game last night, right? Or who won the San Jose Sharks, Colorado Avalanche game last night. I mean, in, in this market, it's O's. Rave, well, it's Ravens first, then O's, then, you know, Terps a little bit, and then whatever. But I love newspapers. I mean, I'll never not subscribe to a newspaper. I'll never not have a newspaper on my front lawn. I force my kids to read the newspaper, even though they think that's the craziest thing in the history of the world. And why can't we just look at it on our phones or on our, you know, tablets or whatever? But I, I love it. I, 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 I mean, there's there's nothing more immediate than that. And my days at the Baltimore Sun, I, I mean, they created me. I was so incredibly lucky to be around so many great editors and so many great journalists. And I just fell into it. And there, there's no... Like anybody who's like, how do I get better at this? Or how do I get better at that? Or how can I be a better broadcaster? Be a better thinker. Be a better writer. Like, write every single day. Write all the time. Write on deadline. Challenge yourself in different ways. There's no substitute for it. So I'm, you know, I'll I'll believe that until I die. What was the prevailing factor for you to leave print and go to television? They made me an offer I couldn't (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't trying to leave. Uh, I made it very clear to the NFL Network that I was beyond happy at the Washington Post, and the Washington Post stepped up and tremendously. And, and my sports editor at the time, uh, Emilio Garcia Ruiz, really wanted to keep me. And, and he, yeah, he did something for me I didn't think that they would ever do. And then somebody else, you know, somebody came in from the outside. So I was like, well, we can do a whole lot better than that. You know, it was a business decision. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I'm a pretty honest guy. And so I had no burning desire to be on TV. I didn't really care about TV. I, I, it w- I wanted to, it was content, content, content. And let me write the best piece I can write. Let me tell the best story I can tell. And let me, you know, illuminate upon something that nobody else is thinking about and do it in the print form. And it just so turned out that, you know, at the time, Eric Weinberger was running the NFL Network, and he became sort of 
enchanted by me or whatever, and he even watching me on local Comcast. I guess at the time it was Comcast, now it's the NBC Sports Network, and we had a, used to have a Washington Post that we sort of sports show on there, and I was on there quite a bit when I covered the Redskins. And they, you know, they, they sort of courted me, and it, at the end of the day, it, it worked out. But I, I really wasn't looking to leave, and, you know, my goal was to eventually be general interest sports columnist at the Washington Post. That was what I was completely focused on. And, and hey, whether it's the Washington Post, Baltimore Sun, whatever, I wouldn't rule it out. Like, having a daily column and having that pulpit and doing it in a smart, educated, always backed by actual reporting, not just half-cocked opinion kind of way, still appeals to me immensely. So who knows, man? I, I, I don't predict the future, but um, I, I – I, Especially in, in 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 this market in Baltimore, where there's there's not a lot of strong voices and there's not a lot of people setting agendas and getting ahead of things and and sort of helping people figure out how to think. I'd love to be a part of that. Well, if you ever want to write a column for the Frederick News Post, you can just let us know and we'd have you anytime. But uh, <laughs> I will definitely keep that in mind as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I could hold a space for you every yeah. Sunday. Um, I may, we'll be there for the 11 o'clock game tomorrow. And if yeah, I, I get totally like, we've got to get the buoy for BP at 3.30. But if I get totally motivated, I will have the laptop <laughs> in the car and maybe I'll follow a game story. The, the problem is we couldn't make him an offer that he could refuse. No, but it would be fun. Actually, like, honestly, it would be cool to go to a Frederick Keys game and write a game story just for old time's sake. If that you could, guys would publish it, I would, that I would could totally be a lot of fun. It. That could be a lot of fun. We, we could arrange. I that. would be totally into it. Um, I'd I'd be remiss. I, I have one more question along these lines. Um, I came to your work through the spots you've done for a long time now, years on uh, the Tony Kornheiser show, on his radio show, and also on his podcast now. And I was wondering, just kind of sitting here as three low budget uh, reporters in Frederick, Maryland, is there a Tony Kornheiser story you could share with us? Uh, <laughs> That that could be either funny or interesting or something we could take home. I, I would just say this: um, Tony is the kind of guy. If 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 you click with Tony, if if you're his kind of guy, if you do right by Tony, if if he just respects your hustle or your work ethic or whatever, if if you connect on any level. Tony is the greatest dude you will ever meet in your life. And I would also say, I would never want to get on Tony's bad side. Like, I, I never have, you know, thank goodness. And I have always had nothing but the most, like, healthy respect for him and what he's done for me. And I can remember being a 25-year-old beat writer covering the Caps at a time when the Caps sucked and him being in the press box and like being willing to be like, okay, what should I watch for? You know what I mean? Like he, he treated me with respect before we even really knew each other as human beings. And all right, kid, what do you think is going to happen tonight? You know, what, what should I be looking for? If you write this, what should I, you know what I mean? Like just mm -hmm. being willing to treat me as a peer, no errors, no BS, like, just two newspaper men doing their jobs and 
he was always that way. And then we got to know each other and he was better than I could have ever expected. And I think the world of him, I mean, he, and, and his ability to connect with people the way he has and to go from, you know, a daily print columnist to somebody who is a part of what's become a staple franchise for ESPN. And then, the radio stuff on top of it, and now the podcast. Tony's great. I, I mean, I like honestly, he's. You ask me who are sort of pillars in this industry and people who I would run through a wall for. Like he's, he's right there. Like he's in, you know, he's in top three to five, regardless. And his instincts are tremendous. He paints himself as a dinosaur, but he's so forward-thinking, and he's so ahead of the curve. Um, but at the end of the day, what I love most about him and what I try to always have inform me is he still has, like our old sports editor, I know he's had his issues with George Solomon or whatever, but George is in his ear. George is in all of our ears. Like he's There's a conscience there, and there's this sort of... Um, GPS, right? This internal GPS that is driven by the editors who help make us and who help make us better and who we learn from. And I think Tony embodies that. And I think Mike Wilbon embodies that as well. And they've taken that to these different um, forums, right? And these, these different areas of the media, but they still, I've always found, have George's sort of yelling at them in the back of their minds and and it's made them better journalists over time and and made them stand out in a market where there's a lot of people who just want to pretend that LeBron sucks and throw darts (laughs) at this guy right and just go lowest common denominator all the time and I think why why a big part of why I mean how long have Tony and Mike been doing this like they were doing this before I had kids and my oldest was 14 they were like 15 16 years that's in, in ESPN years, that's like a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, and they're still in a prime time slot, and they're still helping generate ratings for other shows, and they're still an anchor at a time when they don't even know what Sports Center is anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to reinvent Sports Center and refigure all that out. Like, there's something to be said for keeping your old school newspaper values, but being willing to and 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 forthright enough to change with the times and, and those guys have done it and on top of that they're just tremendous dudes so I don't know I mean my favorite Tony story I don't I mean I can you know remember us in the press box and me telling them I think Adam Jones or Adam Jones I think Adam Jones is going to win this game in overtime and he's like what are you talking about and then like he scores a goal against Tampa and he's like how did you know whatever I mean <laughs> but th- those guys were just they were always tremendous human beings they always they were never bigger than anybody else they never pretended they were bigger than anybody else and they were like the quintessential guys who who could big time everybody but never did and anybody who worked with them on any sort of quasi-consistent level would tell you that now there's people who might have worked with them only once or twice who could you know throw darts but they set the tone for that section and they made us all want to be better. And they made us all want to be them. And again, I was lucky as hell to be there. I, I, 
I was lucky as hell to be at the Baltimore Sun in 95, 96, 97, when you got Ken Rosenthal as the baseball columnist and Buster Olney as the beat guy, and I'm the intern who wasn't even supposed to be there but just begged and pleaded and cried, and they let me come there even though I wasn't getting paid or getting credit or whatever. And then I was, you know, lucky enough to be at the Detroit Free Press when I was there, and the Wings win multiple Stanley Cups. And then I'm at the Washington Post in 99, 2000, 2001, pre, uh, uh, pardon the interruption, and around those guys and just seeing, you know, what they were all about and how hard they worked and how they approached their job. So much of this is right place, right time. And I've been beyond blessed to be around tremendous people who were just absolutely kicking ass and setting a tone and letting us know what was possible if we could come close to working as hard as they did. Hey, Jason, as we wrap up here, I mean, all, all these pro athletes, they get off seasons. Uh, and we were curious, are there off seasons for big time NFL insiders like yourself? I don't know about big, I don't know any big time NFL guys, <laughs> but I definitely, yes, I, I am excited as hell to you headed to the beach. Yeah, or down the ocean? Do. Like I, I get through the draft and then we go to a bunch of minor league games. I, I love coaching my kids, uh, baseball teams and little league teams. And I love this time of year. It gets warm unless there's a deflate gate or some BS like that going on. I actually have a life, and my season goes from about July 22nd, which is like the earliest date most training camps open, and when I start making my tours, from like July 22nd until the draft. That's my season, and then now it's sort of my off season. I do have to travel a little bit to do some interviews with some GMs for this feature they want me to do about you know breaking down some a couple of drafts around the league. But yeah, we'll be at Frederick. Tomorrow morning for at 11 a.m. game. Do you scream your Do you scream your head off at these keys games, or do you just sit there stoically and observe and watch? Or are you do you get animated? No, we you, care. Yeah, no, we, yeah. we're into it, man. Yeah. Like I I know these players. Like I love seeing these guys come up. Um, I, I like I wish that I, I'm a big Ophelki Peralta guy. I, I'm really rooting for that kid. I like his demeanor. I know he's a bit of a headhunter. I kind of like it. He's like Nuko Lush. <laughs> I wish he was starting tomorrow. It's, I think it's Brian Gonzalez. Who like I'm fine with that too. Like whatever. But yeah, I mean I'm I'm into it. Like we watch like the especially now that the, the O's are going to suck for a while. Like we'll watch the games on MILB TV. Like if the Keys are playing, you know, whatever on the road somewhere, we're we're toggling between the Keys and the Bay Sox. And well, there's not really many prospects in Norfolk this year. But Delmarva, whatever, like, I love it. We love it. We, we've had so many great interactions with these kids over the years. And just getting to know them and my kids getting to know them when they're young and then seeing them end up, you know, seeing Trey in Baltimore now and Francisco. And it's not going to be long for Austin. It's not going to be long for Cedric. Uh, you know, Mount Castle, it's not going to be long. Like, it, it, it's, it's awesome. I love it. Um, and what about our home? Yeah, well, no, we'll, we'll be there. We'll be there yelling for Jomar Reyes, and you know. And what about our what about, what about our hometown kid Brandon Klein, who's who's been great in relief so far for the Keys? Yeah, he was on the podcast last week. He was my minor league player of the week. Uh, I know he finally gave up a, a couple of runs. I guess at least one run I saw the other night. 
but that's an amazing story. I, I, I think he'll be fast-tracked. I, he's got a chance to be in the Orioles' bullpen by September, especially if they're lucky enough to unload O'Day's contract and get rid of Brock. And uh, Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd love to see that come to fruition. I mean, we saw him pitching Bowie in 20, what was it, 2016 before he blew his arm out. So that would be, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Frederick's, I mean, the team's not doing that well this year. And they're, they're not exactly, you know, overflowing with talent. I'm actually intrigued by Preston Palmero. We saw him play two or three times in Delmarva last year. And I know they're playing him at second base, and I don't know how that's going to work out. But we had Rocco's, my, my 11-year-old's birthday party at Frederick a couple of weekends ago, and Preston hit a home run there. He hit a home run, I guess, tonight. Um, he's, he's, you know, a little bit of power showing up. I, I'm intrigued by him. Uh, Jean Palufo, I'm intrigued by. I, I, I think, you know, what, what's Ophelke, 2021? 20, uh, his second go-around could be all right. I'm Cody Sedlock, I think they should just make him. When he comes off the DL, he's a reliever. He's not a starter. Like, if he's a late-in guy, so be it. Great. But, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely kids there who – we love seeing them all come up, and then we're going to then we're going to Bowie. I'm literally going to leave Frederick, and I'm driving to Bowie, and Hunter Harvey's pitching for Bowie at six thirty, and we're going to we're going to we're going to be there. In fact, we'll be there at three thirty for early BP. So I've been on like a Christmas twelve day Christmas Bowie Bay Sox thing where you can get in early and watch BP. So we'll be there from three thirty to four fifteen. We'll go to Croft. We'll drive down to Crofton. We'll do the uh, go karts. And the uh, putt putt there. We'll get something to eat, and then we'll be, when the gates open at five thirty, we'll be back inside the stadium. Yeah, Hunter Harvey was supposed to be here in Frederick like three times, and we never got him. It was kind of disappointing, but you know, hey, it's good yeah, to see I him never him saw right. him pitch. I never saw him pitch in Frederick, but I did see him pitch in Delmarva and Aberdeen. Right. And uh, his his last time out for Bowie was legit, and I'm I'm definitely excited to see him uh, tomorrow night. And then we're Norfolk on Saturday. Unfortunately, we'll miss David Hess, who we saw pitching in Frederick and Bowie. Uh, he's pitching Friday night. I don't know who's pitching for Norfolk Saturday. And then Delmarva's loaded, so. Oh, but it's, 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 sorry, I don't know who's pitching for Delmarva on Sunday, though. Whether it's Zach Lothar or D.L. Hall or Cam, thank you, Cam Bishop, Michael Bauman, Brandon Hennessy, their staff is loaded. So let's get those kids moving upwardly down. Well, Jason, we could do this all night. I mean, if if you have four more hours, we could have you on and keep peppering you with questions. But but uh, but, 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 but but we love your. Uh, you got to get some sleep at some point. I I would imagine and some claritin. Oh, I'm gonna some watch claritin. Game. I'm yeah. gonna watch the game. Take take yeah. take take some Nyquil. Um, but we, we we love your passion. We love uh, we we loved having you on. Uh, thanks so much for your time, and uh, and we, we'll we'll do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. No, thanks for having me, guys. I I appreciate it, and we'll definitely do it again. Hopefully sometime when I'm not. Uh, oh, you sounded wait, fine. You sounded fine. I was about to say, hopefully sometime when I'm, my allergies are <laughs> kicking my ass. All right. Thank <laughs> you, Jason. We'll, we'll end on that note right thanks, there. Thanks, Jason. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>